the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, is the Omicron variant going to turn COVID into an endemic? And then we're excited to be joined by Matthew Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. I want to start by talking a little bit about COVID because, you know, COVID's still around. Did you hear that? (laughs) I have heard that. I might have something to say about that here in just a minute. Yeah, but on a large scale, uh, Dr. Fauci came out the other day, and I understand just saying his name causes people uh, to cheer or to boo. Have some reaction. We have gotten to that place as a society right now. He said, though, it is too early to predict whether Omicron's rapid spread will push the coronavirus from the pandemic phase to the endemic, but that he hopes that's the case. What that means is, for those of you who might be hearing the word endemic, uh, is means that what it is is a constant presence in a population, but it does not affect an alarmingly large number of people or disrupt society as has happened through a pandemic. Basically, the case is this, that enough people get it that you start learning to live with uh, with COVID, with something like COVID, much like we've learned to live with the flu or other things. The common cold, uh, right. Correct. But that it is no longer uh, needs to define how we live as a culture. It no longer needs to uh, cause all the things that may be happening uh, in a pandemic. Now, he did say that this would only be the case if we don't get another variant that eludes the immune response of the prior variants. But the idea being that Omicron is less severe uh, and so that maybe it could in some ways be a blessing in disguise that right. more people get it. It kind of works its way. I read a stat the other day where somebody guessed that by the end of this variant, there might be 80% of our of our country might get it. Wow. Uh, and that that's going to be a game changer and that finally, Aubrey, we may be able to move into an endemic that says, hey, just going to live with it. Now, I think a lot of us two years ago were like, okay, this is going to be a couple of weeks and then this thing's going away. <laughs> totally. The idea of an endemic is that it never goes away, but that yeah. we could get back to life as normal. I yeah. like anytime I like to talk about life as normal, Aubrey, it uh, kind of makes me excited. I wholeheartedly agree. And, um, you know, the reality is, Brian, I don't know how to say this to our listeners, but surprise, I have COVID right now. That's our big <laughs> reveal this morning, this afternoon. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so I uh, I am one of that 80% of the population with Omicron at the moment, fighting it strongly. And um, I, But I'm with you. I, I feel like, I mean, having had it now, I will say I, my brain is in a fog. I don't know what words are going to come out of my mouth in this afternoon show. It might be really interesting. <laughs> yes. You guys, you listeners might want to make this some type of a game. Like, what is Aubrey going to say? But um, I I do think that's sort of in a in a worst case scenario, that's the dream scenario, right? That mm-hmm. we can begin mm-hmm. to live with this thing like 
the flu or like the common cold or maybe something more serious than that, strep throat, right. the flu, et cetera. Um, but go back to normal, right? Mm -hmm. Like continue mm -hmm. to live our life as it's supposed to be lived. I think ideally that's the best case scenario in what has felt like such a long, long, long season for all of us. Yeah, so that that is our, our big news. Aubrey is uh, positive. So you might be wondering, then why are you guys doing a show? The beauty of technology is we can do it apart from each other remotely. Yes, uh, and we are not. We are. I, I am isolating everyone. It's okay. Correct. <laughs> Correct. But uh, we'd love to just get your feel because neither, uh, neither up until this point, neither you nor I, as far as we have known, has had COVID. Right. And, uh, you know, you texted the other day and we're like, hey, big news. <laughs> uh, and so uh, for those of us who have never had it or yeah. who are just interested, what has it been like? What is uh, what what is your experience been up until today? Um, what has it been like? It has been, I mean, I feel like I am in a total brain fog. I think that's the weirdest part of it. I, I am vaccinated and boosted. So I do feel thankful that probably this is like the, um, uh, sickness that I will be able to come through on the other end. It started with like a severe sore throat and just kind of feeling yucky. And then I got a fever. It kind of felt like a flu or a sinus infection. I don't even know how to explain it, but what is lingering now is this fatigue and this brain fog. I am so out of it. Like this, again, <laughs> this is going to be a very entertaining show. It's like loopy Aubrey. Um, but I, that's the part I'm like, Lord, I need this brain fog to go away so I can function in real life again. I, I, so two things come to mind for me. The first is while it might be impressive that you are still doing shows while having COVID now that puts the pressure on me. If I ever get COVID, <laughs> I can't be like, Nope, I'm tapping out. And right, uh, right. So that puts the pressure. And I, uh, you know, I'm thankful that you're feeling better. I'm thankful that you're doing well. Uh, I, I, if I'm going to be completely honest, there was part of me that's like, oh, I'm kind of excited for brain fog, Aubrey. Here. <laughs> <laughs> it could be very entertaining. If I just stop talking in the middle of a sentence, Brian, you're going to have to take over. Exactly. Exactly. So what's it meant for your family? What's it meant for yeah, just how you guys function? We all know from people who listen to the show, uh, you've got three kids yep. and uh, so they're in school and all sorts of other things. What's it meant? Yep. So unfortunately, my middle son also has tested positive for COVID. So he and I are in like a quarantine ward in our house right now. We're calling it Camp Quarantine or Camp COVID. <laughs> We've been having sleepovers and isolating. Like he's on one side of the room and I'm on the other. And um, they're remote learning this week because even though he and I are the only ones with COVID and we both have been vaccinated, we're just being extra safe. So everybody else has tested negative. So they're having, we're calling them the positive or the negative testers. We're like those negative testers. They think they're <laughs> better than us. They're ha they're enjoying their time together, the three of them, and then the two of us are isolating together. But yes, the kids are remote learning. We're just being as smart as we can. If I do leave the room, I'm in a mask. And um, hopefully the quarantine is over here pretty soon, but I think we'll just be really smart and keep testing every couple days till we're, you know, we have a negative COVID test just to make sure we're not contagious. This might be too soon to ask this question because yeah. you're still in the midst of it. Uh, but how has this, so we've talked every day almost on this show about COVID, right? Yeah. Like you've had to deal with COVID as a pastor, all sorts of yeah. different realities of COVID. How is having it, changing at all your perspective and how you think about it and uh, maybe has it changed anything for you? I mean, I would just say it's pretty terrible. Like I said, it does feel like a really bad flu or a sinus infection. And even my husband and I got um, malaria back in 2004 or 20, 2004 when we lived in Zambia. 
And it made me think of malaria. Like I was like, where have I felt this brain fog before? Oh, this reminds me of malaria. So I would say if anything, it has made me feel like you should definitely get the vaccine and the booster if you are able to before God and before your conscience, because if there was a worse version of this, I would not want to suffer through it. Like it's not, it's not been fun. And I would just say the repercussions of like, now my kids having to be remote and the, um, the onus that it's putting on Kevin when he's got other responsibilities, like it's just a lot on a family. So I would say avoid it at all possible, even though it is a milder version, it's still like, I don't feel good. Yeah. And so I I don't it hasn't lessened my um oh Omicron, it's no big deal. Like I'm definitely like, nope, this is a big deal. Try to avoid it, be smart people, and let's get through this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you're with us today. And thank you. Hopefully on the mend. We we you know, I look forward to a couple uh a, now when we do grinds my gears later in the week, you can be like, you know what grinds my gears? Brain fog. <laughs> That's what it is. Well, we're glad that you are with us today. As we said, uh, we're, we're making things work today and uh, thankful for Aubrey to be back with us, even in the midst of her positive COVID test. Well, coming up next, Matthew Sorens, a friend of the show. He is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table and the co-author of a book called Welcoming the Stranger. Matthew's going to join us and kind of catch us up on what's going on. We talked a lot a few months ago uh, about with Afghanistan and all sorts of other things about refugees. And, and we'd like to have Matthew every now and then to come on and talk about what's going on culturally right now. So we're thrilled to be joined next by Matthew Sorens here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And uh, if you've been with the show for a while, you know that that we do have some recurring guests who we just like to talk to, who uh, we jokingly say make us smarter, but also help us understand what's going on in the world in some very important areas uh, and so with that in mind, Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy uh, for World Relief. He's also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. His name is Matthew Sorens. Matt, how are you doing today, bud? Doing okay. It's great to be back with you all. Yeah, it's great to have you back with us. And I, I just want to start here, Matt. We uh, you know, we're talking, you know, six months ago, four months ago. I don't even remember the timeline. Everybody was talking about what was going on in Afghanistan. And we had you on at that time to talk about uh, people coming over, what the church can be doing. But as was, as happens with any kind of big news story, the vast majority of us uh, move on to the next major move uh, news story, whereas people like yourself and World Relief like this is still uh, what you're passionate about and what you're dealing with. So let's just start there. Could you catch us up uh, for people who might not even remember what happened in 2021 uh, with the United States and Afghanistan? And more importantly, what is going on right now? What is the state of things now? Yeah, I mean, it's been kind of a whirlwind of several months for us at World Relief. And I, I do realize that for most Americans, things of, you know, there's other news stories that people have moved on to, but right. it was in mid-August that, the the previous government of Afghanistan fell to the Taliban and um, 
the United States military did a very quick process to try to evacuate out tens of thousands of people out of Afghanistan, both U.S. citizens and European allies, but also um, tens of thousands of Afghans who were going to be uniquely vulnerable to the Taliban government, especially those, for example, who served served alongside the U.S. military or um, others who maybe were women leaders or were minorities, either ethnic or religious, or for other reasons, were going to be vulnerable. Um, and many of those people were evacuated out to third countries, and then most of them have then been brought to the United States. Um, uh, so since that time in mid-August, uh, we many of them were on military bases in the United States, different parts of the U.S. for a number of uh, weeks or even months being processed and vaccines and all that. But most of them have now been uh, resettled to communities around the United States, including here in Chicagoland um, through World Relief and then through other resettlement agencies as well. And for us, it's just been a kind of a sprint to connect those arriving families, which has been a much larger number than we've seen arriving uh, right in terms of refugees than in any time in the recent past um, to all the basic things that they need to start a new life. So housing, um, eventually within the first you know several weeks, employment, getting kids into school. And then at World Relief, our mission is to empower our churches to serve. So connecting them to, to friends in the United States, which are often you know, going to be volunteers from local churches. So we've been very, very busy. Um, we've mm. had many people arrive both here in Chicagoland and across the country. And we still, you know, it'll be several months at least of more people arriving. In addition to those coming from other countries as well, that has um, slowed down a little bit, but there's still people coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo and from Ukraine and from Burma and other countries as well. But the majority have been Afghans in recent months. And Matthew, I know for our listeners, sometimes hearing about um, the data can be difficult to comprehend. Is there a story perhaps that you can tell us about maybe a church that's come beside one of these families or a a certain partnership that has been meaningful in such a difficult situation? You know, one, it's not necessarily local. It's actually down in Memphis, Tennessee. But I was actually just recently on a phone call with a, a pastor of one of our partner churches in Memphis, which is another community that's been receiving a lot of Afghans. And this particular pastor actually, uh, with his wife, decided that they would open up their home uh, to serve as a host family for an Afghan uh, couple and their children who had arrived um, in, with Sometimes because we're not getting a lot of advance notice about people arriving, we can't get housing available, uh, permanent housing available as quickly as we need it. So sometimes we rely on host families or even on hotels or that sort of thing. But this particular pastor at a Presbyterian church down in Memphis said, you know, we could um, we've got some extra space. We could host this family. And they had the what they said was just an incredible privilege of hosting this Afghan family for the first several weeks they were in the United States. Um, and. You know, it was just such a beautiful opportunity for them to both uh, practice hospitality, as the Bible tells us to do, to, and also really be blessed by this family. And now they're into, you know, into an apartment and on their own, but still good friends with this family from this church that decided they wanted to reach out and be a part of welcoming. Oh, that's awesome. I would encourage people to check out World Relief. Uh, they're, they're doing such good things. Uh, Matthew, I, I didn't tell you, I was going to tell you this. My daughter actually on her own did some work with some volunteering with World Relief and couldn't have been more, in, uh, couldn't have been more moved by it. And it's kind of like, uh, helping her kind of see some things she wants to do in her life. And so I would encourage wow. people, uh, to go check out World Relief at worldrelief.org. That's World Relief. Uh, .org. Uh, Matthew, as we think about the Afghan people, and I, and I believe you're going to help us understand why they're even be called, being called Afghan parolees right now, but uh, maybe explain that to us. But then also, 
there's things we can be doing as churches and as individuals to urge Congress uh, to get involved here and provide a path to permanent status for these Afghan parolees. Help us understand that. Yeah. So one of the unique dynamics with the Afghan situation, I mean, these people are, for practical purposes, they're refugees, which means they have fled a credible fear of persecution. Obviously, we're all aware of what the Taliban is and has done. But they have not actually, in most cases, come to the United States through the formal refugee process in most cases. And the reason for that was simply the U.S. government needed to get people out quickly and then you know, after they did their security background vetting overseas, but they didn't have time for quite the normal, rather bureaucratic process that's in place that can take a year or two for vetting people overseas because, I mean, you literally had people crammed into military bases in, in third countries. So the, uh, the U.S. government used something called parole, um, which is part of our immigration laws that can be used to basically bring people in in a humanitarian crisis or in the national interest. And that's how the vast majority of these uh, tens of thousands of Afghans, roughly 70,000, I believe, nationally, have been brought to the United States. So, you know, I certainly appreciate why our government would do that in an urgent situation. The challenge with this parole process is these individuals are lawfully present. They are eligible to work on a temporary basis, but it is a temporary renewable status. It doesn't ever allow you on its own, at least to apply for permanent legal status and citizenship. And that's a real concern for us. You know, we have an immigration legal services program and all of our Chicago line offices that are already really busy. And if, you know, frankly, there are limited options to pursue permanent legal status. Some might qualify for asylum, but that is an intensive process. Some might qualify for a special immigrant visa status if they serve the U.S. military. But you have to have served in very specific roles for that. Uh, And it is also a backlogged process. So what we've been urging Congress to do is to say, look, we've brought these people to our country. We want them to to integrate into our communities, to thrive here. We need to offer them, you know, with additional screening as appropriate, the opportunity to apply for permanent legal status. And that's something that um, actually there's a law called the Cuban Adjustment Act that basically allows that for Cubans. And that goes back decades. We'd like to see an Afghan Adjustment Act that would be a similar law that would specifically apply to the Afghans who are paroled into the United States in the last uh, several months. And so that's something we've been urging Congress to do. It would take congressional action. It's not something, for example, that the president can do on his own. So we actually have a, an advocacy tool for that on our uh, World Relief is a part of a coalition called the Evangelical Immigration Table. So um, with other evangelical groups at evangelicalimmigrationtable.com slash Afghans, um, there's a pre-prepared letter that people can use to reach out to their own members of Congress and say, hey, this is something that we'd like these Afghans to be able to, to really be belong in the United States, not just be temporary, perpetual temporary guests, but to have the opportunity to apply for permanent status. And that that would be the prerequisite to ultimately uh, being able to pursue U.S. citizenship. So you said it's evangelicalimmigrationtable.com slash Afghan. Is that what you said? Afghans, plural. Afghans. Great. We'd encourage people to go there. Matthew, you've helped us understand over the years uh, regardless of the administration, regardless of what political party is in power, you've helped us see what the government can do and, and what's frustrating, what, what is hard when the government kind of puts some blocks on you guys. Uh, you did that for us with the Trump administration. I'm curious, now that the Biden administration has been going on for a year now, uh, what, what changes have you guys seen in immigration policy as it pertains to particularly to refugees? Where are your frustrations? What are you pleased with? Help us understand that. Yeah, you know, I'd say it's kind of in a mixed bag, as it usually is. Um, you know, we talked about the Afghans' arrival, and while that was not a, maybe wasn't as orderly of a process as we 
would have liked it to be and, and think it should have been. Um, we are really grateful that those Afghan allies of the United States and other vulnerable Afghans have been able to get out. I'd say one ongoing frustration for us is there's many other Afghans, uh, particular categories of people, who, you know, additional people who serve the U.S. military, persecuted religious minorities, including Christians, uh, people who are, you know, maybe women who are very prominent in society who did not get out during that evacuation of Afghanistan. And that is something that the, the Biden administration has the authority to parole in some additional individuals. We've been urging them to do so. Um, and at this point, we've not seen nearly as, you know, the numbers that we think ought to be after that initial evacuation. So that's been a real concern. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the situation in Afghanistan is really, really dire at this point for everyone, not just for those who serve the U.S. military or have some other status, but especially for those who are uniquely facing persecution. We think the, you know, the, the U.S. government really cannot just wash its hands of the situation in Afghanistan, especially of those who stood alongside us. Um, I, I would say another area that we've been... Um, discouraged by is the asylum process, which is a process by which individuals who have professed to have a credible fear of persecution can request the safety in the United States. And that happens both with people who get temporary visas to come via the airport, but also happens at our borders. And to be really clear, we've never said a world relief, the borders should be open, let everybody in. We think we need secure borders. But part of a secure border is a process by which someone who has a credible fear of persecution can request assistance. And what's been happening for um, almost two years now because of under the sort of the, uh, the, you know, because of COVID and at least in part is the U.S. has been using kind of an old public health rule and just turning people away without even screening them mm. for asylum. Mm. Um, and we understand that COVID, we're all, you know, we're all tired of COVID. It's hard to deal with. <laughs> but we need to find a way to continue to respect the, our laws that offer safety and protection to those fleeing a credible fear of persecution yeah. and still protecting public health. And mm. um, we can't just use COVID as sort of a, an excuse to say, well, we can't offer protection to those fleeing persecution. Mm, that's good, Matt. Let me step back for just a minute, Matthew. You've been on the show before and you've talked about this, but I'm thinking of listeners who may have not heard you before. Why should these particular issues matter for the Christian? Like, Give us a theological understanding of why God cares about uh, immigrants and refugees. Yeah. You know, I appreciate you always bringing us back to that, Aubrey, because uh, for us at World Relief, that's central to why we do this work. It's not because we're looking for a tough issue. It's because we are called biblically to care for those who are vulnerable. And in, um, you know, starting with the reality that every refugee, every immigrant is a person made in the image of God, just like the rest of us. Uh, and going back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, we've Christians have always understood that idea that human beings being made in God's image means that they have inherent dignity and that human life is worth protecting and, and saving when it is at risk, um, regardless of any qualifier. You know, there's no conditions on that, that if you're, uh, you know, we should protect human life as long as they're from this country or they share our faith or, you know, have some other commonality. And then very specifically, the Bible speaks so frequently to God's heart for the foreigner, or depending on which translation of the Bible you're reading in English, it's the sojourner, the stranger, the immigrant, the alien. Um, often that, that, um, word is mentioned alongside the orphan and the widow as part of these three groups of people who God makes very clear in the Old Testament he loves and whom he then commands his people to love very explicitly as well. Um, and that carries in the New Testament as well, where it's part of the command to love our neighbor. You can't read the story of the Good Samaritan and conclude that the neighbor whom we're called to love only means the person who shares your 
you know, nationality or your ethnicity or religion and lives next to you, uh, because that's clearly not the example Jesus gives with the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a vulnerable traveler who's unknown to that Good Samaritan who is different from him, but is in need. Yeah. And even just the general idea of, of um, hospitality, the idea of lo- the love of stranger in the Greek, it's philoxenia. That's not necessarily an American cultural value. And we tend to think more of stranger danger, like strangers <laughs> are people to be afraid of. And I'm not here to claim that the Bible promises all strangers are safe. I mean, we can look at the, you know, the U.S. has a very strong record of, of vetting refugees and that sort of thing. But frankly, even if they didn't, we would be called to love strangers. Mm. And in Hebrews, we're told that some people, by welcoming strangers, have entertained angels mm. without realizing it. Mm. I, you know, I don't know that any of the refugees we've resettled the World Relief have necessarily been angels, but I <laughs> would say um, they have certainly been a blessing to the yeah. churches that have helped receive them and welcome them and to the country overall. I mean, this country's story, it's a complicated history, but uh, has been blessed and has become what it is through the arrival of various waves of immigrants um, under, coming under different circumstances. Some fleeing as refugees, some maybe not technically immigrants, but victims of trafficking brought by force to this country against their will. Others seeking economic opportunity. Um, but regardless of the circumstances, this country is what it is in significant part because of people who've come from other places and yeah. brought uh, brought that drive to start over and to rebuild and to, and that's been such a blessing to the country on an economic basis. It's frankly something we need right now at a time, you know, one of the significant economic challenges is a lack of adequate people in the labor market. So we could use more people working, not, not fewer, Mm. but also just on a cultural level. And even for the church, I mean, I live out in Aurora where, the church I go to is a Spanish-speaking church, and it is just a vibrant church. There's a lot of those churches in my community uh, that are led by and, and mostly composed of immigrants yeah. who are bringing uh, you know, a vibrant Christian faith with them in many cases to this country. And others, immigrants come in, they don't know Jesus, and they might encounter him here if the church is the people who will be those folks welcoming folks at the airport and opening up their homes, opening up uh, their lives in relationship. So that, as First Peter 3 says, we might have that opportunity to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that's within us. Amen. Amen. And Matthew, with like the last minute or two that we have left, uh, individuals and churches, how can people get involved with World Relief? What are some of the ways that they can get involved? Yeah, so um, we've got all sorts of opportunities. If you go to worldrelief.org, and specifically here in Chicagoland, worldrelief.org slash Chicagoland, so whether in the city or the suburbs, um, there's both individual volunteer opportunities. We've got some team uh, volunteer opportunities, which are usually like a small group from a church. One of the big needs, I think I said this six months ago, but it still is true, is we're having a hard time finding affordable housing in Chicagoland at this point. So if anyone happens to be an apartment owner um, and would want to offer, you know, you know, there's, you know, it's rent, it's not a gift, but finding people to rent to a newly arrived refugee who doesn't have a credit history can be hard. Um, so that's a huge need. And then on our website, there's also there's advocacy opportunities, there's giving opportunities. So maybe some people, they don't have the time to do this, but they could um, provide some financial support, both to what we're doing locally, but also the work of World Relief around the world as well. Wonderful. Matthew Sorens, again, is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Learn more about World Relief at worldrelief.org. You can also visit evangelicalimmigrationtable.com slash Afghans uh, if you want to learn about ways you can help or if you want to urge your congressman. Uh, they've got stuff there so that you can write to your congressman. And lastly, you can follow Matthew at 
at Matthew Sorens on Twitter at Matthew Sorens. Matthew, it's always so good to have you on. We always learn so much. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, so happy to do it. Thanks, thanks to both of you. Thanks, Matt. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. And, Aubrey, we are thrilled to be joined by a a new team member here of The Common Good. Uh, Somebody that you know, he is a chiropractic physician and the founder of Active Health and Restoration in Carroll Stream. His name is Dr. Alex Earl. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Uh, we're real excited to have you on. And before we talk about uh, how you got into the field of chiropractic and uh, before we talk about active health and restoration, just introduce yourself. Let our audience get to know you. Tell them a little bit about yourself. All right. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Um, well, I, I grew up in South Wheaton uh, and played a lot of sports and had a lot of injuries, uh, was in and out a lot of uh, physical therapists and chiropractors offices. And uh, But what really got me into the chiropractic profession was at my two-year checkup, uh, the uh, doctor, family physician noticed I had scoliosis. And so my parents were really interested in learning more about natural treatments. Um, surgery at that age just seemed uh, very extreme. And so we, we all agreed to just kind of wait and see how, how things would uh, manifest and how things would unfold for the years to come. And 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 Lord Lord willing, Lord bless uh, bless this uh, decision that my parents made that uh, I never got surgery. I had very little pain up until wow. high school, and uh, and and I actually have a pretty severe double uh, thoracic uh, uh, scoliosis. And so um, you wouldn't notice though uh, though while I was playing, and soccer was my big sport. It still is. Uh, I'm a I'm a huge Liverpool fan. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I was I was still in and out of a lot of offices uh, just for maintenance, and I I wanted to. Uh, learn more about you know the differences between physical therapy and chiropractic, and I landed in some really good physical therapist office, and some really bad ones, and some really good chiropractors, and some bad ones. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of very very godly men mentor me and kind of uh, show me the ropes, so to speak, in what the chiropractic profession was all about. So I I went to college, played soccer in college, and that's where I really decided I wanted to pursue this chiropractic profession uh, full tilt. Mm, that's great. And um, Brian, you'll appreciate I, I'm a patient of Dr. Mm-hmm. Alex's. So is Kevin. And so is our son, Nolan. And Liverpool is often playing in the background. When you're at his office. <laughs> so, awesome. so he's not joking about that. But Alex, you've been so helpful for, for me, some of my chronic pain, for my husband, some of his sports injuries, and for Nolan, some of his developmental uh, stuff. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what makes your practice different than some other uh, chiropractors out there. Well, I think there are a lot of fantastic chiropractors and, and uh, physical therapists and orthopedic doctors in the area. Um, so we, we have a lot of uh, really, really good mutual respect and, and working relationship with a lot of the providers in our area. Um, I would say the one thing that sets us apart is um, we really are relationship driven. Um, we are goal, goal oriented and outcome oriented. Don't get us wrong, but we really want to get to know the person that comes into our office on a deeper level, more so than you know, we are really sorry that your your low back is hurting or your knee is hurting, uh, but we want to know, well, what is this doing to your life? How can we improve the quality of your life? Uh, and, and sometimes it's it's they just want to get up out of bed without any back pain or they want to be able to walk downstairs with no pain in the knee. And that's what we try to do is really build a relationship first and then work on the treatments and work on the goals second. 
Uh, Alex, uh, I've done chiropractic work uh, through the years, so I definitely believe in it. But there are people out there who are skeptical about chiropractic work. Like, what is this? And and I might have had that thought before I got into getting chiropractic work done. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, this is really helpful. I had a lot of chiropractors like you describe who are very relational. Uh, help people understand what exactly you are doing and uh, that that chiropractic work is not something to be scared of. Right. I, I totally get it. And that's something that I've I witnessed firsthand as, as a patient all those years ago, that there's very different uh, ideologies and philosophies even within the profession. So we might have the same you know, two letters after our name in uh, DC, doctor of chiropractic, but we might practice so extremely different. And so that's really, first of all, that's confusing to the public. The public might go to one chiropractor and they might, um, you know, they might get x-rays and an exam and get adjusted within 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and they might come to our office and they might spend an hour and a half to two hours um, looking at the entire body, taking a very thorough intake, doing a full comprehensive physical exam, things like that, where it's more more medical, uh, orthopedic oriented, and the other is um, it's it's like short and quick, and it's to the point, uh, which which does get results. And so I, I'm 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 not I'm not saying one is better than the other. I think the market would have um, pushed one of those out of practice entirely if if people weren't getting results. So it really it really comes down to what are your expectations for care, and then how does your how do you, how do your goals align with the provider's um, skill set and and what their office treatment strategies are like. And Alex, just thinking about, you know, it's a new year. There are a lot of people who are, you know, they've made New Year's resolutions coming into 2022. And I know for a lot of people, health is at the top of their list, but we see that health kind of goes away after probably 30 days. I wonder if you have any words of encouragement for our listeners out there who are trying to make their health more of a priority. Uh, well, first of all, I love it. I'm I'm very much in uh, in this category myself. I mean, it it does take some time to really, um, you know, solidify new habits. I think they say about 30 days to get new habits. And so we're right in that New Year's resolution. Um, so I would just give people a, a, a firm word of encouragement that, you, you, first of all, you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there that are going through um, health struggles, but then also um, trying to achieve health and fitness uh, goals. And and so getting involved into a community of people that um, are similar minded and, and also have similar goals with you is, is really a powerful step. Um, I, I obviously, um, I'm, I'm big into uh, health and fitness, but I'm, I, I'm no different. I, I need to rely on some of our providers here at our Carol Stream office to help me out and to, and to give me encouragement and every once in a while to give me um, that accountability nudge that's like, let's go, you can do this, you got this. And that goes a long way just by letting other people know that they're not alone is really, really a significant feat. And also we, we pray for all of our patients. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's something that came with, uh, again, that mentorship of, of the godly men that I, I learned from many years ago that, you know, that's a human being that's coming to our office. And, um, and we, we have this connection with them. And part of that comes from our dedication to pray for our patients. We see a lot of, a lot of non-believers. We see a lot of uh, believers that come in here. But we as a staff uh, make it a point to set time aside to pray for them, to just lift them up to the Lord and let them know, hey, we got you. Um, if we can't help you physically, then the Lord can take over spiritually. Right. That's awesome, man. Dr. Alex Earl is a chiropractic physician and founder of Active Health and Restoration in Carroll Stream. And uh, Dr. Alex is offering 
a great thing for our listeners. He's offering a complimentary longevity and anti-aging health assessment for listeners of The Common Good. So here's what you can do. You can learn more at myactiverestoration.com slash longevity. That's myactiverestoration.com slash longevity. And uh, we really want you to get connected with Alex. So here's what you can do. Call 630-765-0575. That's 630-765-0575. Or you can visit myactiverestoration.com. That's myactiverestoration.com. Alex, it's been great to get to know you. Thanks for being a part of the common good. We're really excited about that. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Appreciate it, Brian. Thank you, Aubrey. Absolutely. You're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, We were not able to reflect on the importance of yesterday. Uh, It was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a holiday. Our kids were off of school. Uh, And let me ask it to you this way, Aubrey. What's the significance, not just of the day, but what's the significance to uh, you know, teaching our children or our our friends the significance of Dr. King uh, through a holiday. Just kind of reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think for our kids, and you know, it maybe I'm wrong, but I think for our kids, it's hard to understand a day and an age when things were so segregated. Now, certainly, they know the reality of racism, and they're they're talk they talk about it now, and they've seen it even in the past few years nationally. But to just think about a day in an age when like black kids couldn't go to school with white kids, or couldn't drink from the same water fountain, or couldn't sit at the same part of the restaurant or the bus or, or movie theater or what have you, I mean, that's a that is just an evil that existed. Period in our right. country, it just is, and. So to honor someone like Dr. King, who so vocally fought against that and at the end of the day was killed because of it, I think it teaches our kids the power of legacy, the power of standing up for what's right, even when it's hard, and the power of what like um, a person can do and can change when they're willing to sacrifice um, their own safety for the common good. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but I actually mean that. And so I, you know, I, I think Dr. King's legacy, especially being a black man in America, fighting against racism, fighting against injustice, fighting for civil liberties is, um, a legacy that is really, really in like the sea of, of so many, and he wasn't a perfect guy, but in the sea of so many fallen leaders and, um, historical figures who we find out were corrupt in the end to honor someone like him who was a pastor, loved God, risked his life for really gave his life for what he believed in. I mean, I think it's just important for our kids to understand that legacy so that they can, they can live in that kind of same way. Yeah. You know, what hit me yesterday as I was reading some stories, I don't, you obviously know he was assassinated. So you know that he died much earlier. You know, he would have been 93 years old this weekend. Right. I don't think I realized how young he was. So I was 38, 39 years old so when he young. was assassinated. I don't, I, I don't know why. I always pictured him just a little bit older mm. than that. And what we thought would be powerful was to reflect on some of Dr. King's words. And uh, this is a, a, a message, a, a speech he gave at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. 
uh, in Montgomery, Alabama on November the 17th, 1957. Uh, that deals with a topic that we all preach about and we all talk about, the topic of loving your enemies. What's it look like to love your enemies? Let's listen to that. The Greek language comes out with another word for love. It is the word agape. And agape is more than eros. Agape is more than philia. Agape is something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they are likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know God loves him. And he might be the worst person you've ever seen. And this is what Jesus means, I think, in this very passage when he says, love your enemy. And it's significant that he does not say, like your enemy. Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing. I don't like them. But Jesus said, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive, goodwill for all men so that you love everybody because God loves them. All right, find that that simple line so powerful. Jesus didn't, that's why he didn't say like your enemies. He said, love your enemies after laying the foundation down of the different kinds of love and what self-sacrificial love looks like. We often get wrong the difference between like and love and what does it look like? No, no, we're told to love our enemies. And I appreciate somebody like Dr. Martin Luther King, who uh, had a lot of people who could and should be his enemies uh, saying there are people I don't like, but I'm still called to love them. To hear those words from him, a person who is eventually going to be assassinated mm-hmm. by his enemies, yeah. I think is profoundly important. Yeah, I was thinking about that, just even the vulnerability of saying, like, look, there are a lot of people I don't like. And and that alone from a pastor, preacher, speaker is like pretty powerful because that's really real. I mean, I think the reality is like we can all say that. I don't like how this person treats me. I don't like something about them. I don't like what they stand for. But God calls us to something deeper, to love. And like you said, Brian, the fact that here's a guy who ended up giving his entire life for that Mm -hmm. message. um, This feels like on a number of levels, so, so, so powerful. And thinking about it, I mean, this is 1957. We're here in 2022 dealing with the same sort of reality, like reminding people just to be kind to people you're different than. Mm. I think this is a word as much now as it was in 1957, don't you think? Yeah, in some different ways and sadly in some similar ways. Uh, But I do think the human condition is always going to push back and struggle with love your enemies. Right. And is always going to push back. And yeah, so you make a valid point because we can look back at what he was dealing with in 1957 and go, look how far we've come. Although I'm not sure we've come as far as we think. Yeah. uh, With with uh, with while then having a blind look at. Uh, no, no, we struggle with this just as much. We struggle with um, just look at your social media f- uh, feed, for instance. But uh, we struggle with the idea of loving our enemies, even the people we don't like uh, or the people we don't agree with or the people uh, that that bother us. And so, Aubrey, I think 
it would do justice to Dr. King's teaching here to go, what's, how do we do this better? Mm. How do we go ahead and go, you know what? I'm going to work on this, the most important commandment. Jesus said, love the Lord, your God and love your enemies. How do we start to do that better? You know, I, one of the things that, um, Dr. King was known for talking about was really, and I hope it's okay that I say this. I've said things like this on the show before, so I don't think it'll surprise anybody, but he really challenged specifically the white church to not, um, not be silent and not be satisfied with silence or status quo, but instead use your voice specifically to stand up against injustice. And I actually think even though that makes people really uncomfortable and even though that can ruffle a lot of feathers, it is actually a kinder, more loving thing in the end to use your voice um, when you're the one in a position of power to stand up for um, any situation of injustice. even if it means making your enemies uncomfortable, I actually think that's a way of loving your enemies. So I know that sounds a little counterintuitive, but is, am I, my COVID brain is taking over, but does that, no, make, that sense, makes sense, Brian? Oh, yeah. it totally does. Totally does. And the first thing that came to mind for me is, this is going to sound really simple, but look for ways where you're not loving your enemies. Look to the places mm. where you've uh, been an unloving person uh, and then uh, start to make some changes, make minor baby steps, and eventually those baby steps grow more and more. So we hope that you took time to reflect on the day. You didn't just take the day off of work yesterday or whatever, but took time to reflect on why yesterday was a holiday and what it was a holiday for. Uh, and I'd encourage you on YouTube, you can find all sorts of teachings from Dr. King. Uh, they are well worth your time, like that one on a uh, talking about loving your enemies. Well, coming up next, we're going to close the show Uh, by talking about humility and namely, what are some markers of humility in our lives? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, hope for your life. Uh, Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And one of the things Aubrey and I often say is that we want to end our show with conviction, with challenge, with encouragement, something to think about as you go about the rest of your evening and the rest of your day. Uh, and, and I thought this was one of them over at Church Leaders, Tim Challies. Uh, he's a great writer. He has a great blog uh, that, that is well worth your time. But he wrote an article, or they posted it up here, called 10 Sure Marks of Humility. So talking about the idea of humility. And, and humility is a difficult one, right? The old saying goes, just when I think I'm a humble person, that's that's a great sign that I'm not. <laughs> so, right. But the Bible talks about, about humility so often. It's so often. And he writes here, is there any trait more odious than pride or more precious than humility? He kind of mm. holds those two against one another. So he asks, what is humility? Uh, humility is Uh, A humble person thinks little of him or herself. Uh, And he's going to go through the markers of humility here, that that being the first one. But Aubrey, uh, you're preaching a message on humility or Mm -hmm. somebody asks you, help me under, I understand the importance of humility, but truthfully, I don't understand humility itself. Help somebody understand that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a really good question because I think sometimes we can get humility confused with like low self-esteem. Mm. 
I think biblically, if we just think about like Jesus humbling himself to the point of death, that humility really is putting other people before you, Mm -hmm. thinking of other people as better than yourself. And while that may not come naturally to everyone because of our sinfulness, humility is, I believe, a virtue that the Lord can develop in you, the Holy Spirit can develop in you over time. But certainly it is from a posture of first humbling yourself before the Lord, right? right. And realizing that God is the only one worthy of worship. I am not. And therefore, really before the Lord, I am nothing. Um, But because God has given me value, I have value. And so I I think humility is sort of, not is sort of, is definitely a heart posture of worship where God is in his proper place as God and you are in your proper place as a human under the mercy of God. That's good. I think you make the most important point there that uh, humility becomes a fruit of understanding who I am in light of God, not in light of other people. Mm. When I'm only comparing myself to other people, I can go, well, you know, I'm a little smarter than that person or I have a little more money than that person or, you know, whatever else. I'm more talented in this. We can start to become delusional uh, that goes, oh, I'm an impressive person. But throughout the Bible, we see when people mm, judge themselves in light of the holy, all-powerful God, that is going to drive humility, regardless of how you compare to other people. Uh, and so let me read some of these when he asked kind of 10 signs of humility. And then Aubrey, I'd love for to hear one or two of these that jump out to you. Uh, he asks 10 times, what is humility? Uh, and I re- already read to you the first one. A humble person thinks little of themselves. Uh, a humble person thinks better of others than of himself. Mm. A humble person has a low assessment of his spiritual disciplines. A humble person complains about his heart, not his circumstances. A humble person praises God in times of trouble. A humble person magnifies Jesus. A humble person accepts reproof from sin for Mm -hmm. sin. A humble person is content to be eclipsed by others. Mm -hmm. A humble person accepts the condition God sees best for him. And a humble person will stoop to the lowest person and lowest tasks. All of those are really good. But but talk to me. Any of those jump out to you? Yeah. um, I would say, too, that kind of connect for me. Um, A humble person is content to be eclipsed by others. And then a humble person accepts the condition God sees best for him or for her. Mm -hmm. I I would say, especially Brian, you and I have talked about this too, just, um, you know, that, that act of comparison, especially because of social media or whatever field that you're in, when you see other people being more successful than you, it can be easy to to kind of go straight there. God, why are they more successful than me? Right. Why are you why are you doing this in their life but you're not doing it in mine? And right. you know, I hate admitting that. It's so petty and shallow and gross, but that's real, okay? That's yep. not humble. That's human. And so I I think those stood out to me as like, okay, Lord, I need you to I need you to increase those um things in my life to be content, to be eclipsed by others. Wow, just to like be okay with it. And, and out of trusting, it's because God, you know, what's best for me. That's right. I trust you with the circumstances of my life. I trust that, you know, where I should be, where I shouldn't be, where other people should be, where they shouldn't be. And like kind of staying in your own lane, trusting that the Lord is driving your lane. That feels like a a really powerful area of humility that I, for one, need to grow in. Yeah. And I think one of the things that becomes powerful is 
to realize <clears throat> here's the struggle when I read that list, Aubrey. It could be like, man, you have such a low view of yourself. Mm. <laughs> like, right. Uh, so what you're saying to me is have really, really, really low self esteem. And I don't think that's no, the point. that's not it. Yeah. Because then we get reminded, you wrote a book about this, of what our identity is in Christ, of yes. actually where our self esteem is best rooted. Right. Uh, and that's how God sees us. But it is, it, it becomes less about us than about, you know, it, you know, if you're if you're hanging your hopes on I do these things, if it's if it's all in the first person, we had that with uh, we listened to that clip a week or two ago from Josh Moody. If it's all <laughs> right. about the first person, then you're not understanding it. But instead, when you compare yourself to other people, you go, man, we're both uh, well below the holiness of God and we're both in need of the grace of God. And so therefore, uh, I can. Uh, I can serve others. I mm-hmm. can uh, I can have a proper view of myself. You brought up, I can stoop to be the lowest person on the totem pole yep. and do the menial task because nothing's above me. Yes. I, oh, I'm above doing that. No, you're not because right. that is where true humility comes in. Uh, Aubrey, real fast, what would be a marker that you're struggling at this where you're not uh, – thriving in yeah. humility, if you will. I would say a, bi- a big one would be like um, jealousy or even bitterness, because I do think like the root of both of those things are pride because you just assume like, well, I should have this or I should I should have what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the Bible calls that coveting, right? That's an old, old word. Yep. Um, I think the minute that you assume God should be doing something for you that you see him doing for others, that's the minute that you've stopped worshiping God as God. Yeah. And you've stopped uh, submitting yourself humbly before his lordship. And That's so right. I would say if you just note that in yourself again, there's grace for you. There's mercy for you. But just that's a moment to be like, oh, Lord, here I am again. I'm so jealous. I'm so bitter. I'm so can, can you help me? Can you humble me? Can you change me? And to to pray for humility is one of those hard prayers because you know the answer might be that you have to go through something humbling, right? <laughs> you know that God's going to answer that right, prayer, right? Right. But I do think for the sake of your soul, for spiritual growth, even for your own contentment, like humility will be a far more um, freeing way to live than in a season of, or a, yeah, than in a mindset of jealousy, bitterness, et cetera. That's good. That's good. So I thought that was a challenging way to end. We want to challenge you yep. uh, as Christ followers in light of who Jesus is. Uh, we are called to live as he did uh, with humility, considering others better than ourselves. And if we all did that, uh, we would understand more greatly the gospel and who Jesus is. But our world would, quite frankly, be a better place. Thanks so much for joining us today. Join us tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. Going to be a great show. We hope that you are here with us. For Aubrey Sampson, I'm Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The 
explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.